Hi everyone, Dr Gemma Bale here. Welcome to a bonus episode of Röntgen's Radio. This episode has a slightly different tone to our normal ones. It's a sister episode to episode 6 where we talked with Professor Claire Elwell about her research in biomedical optics. But in this episode we talk more with Claire about how to succeed in academia, along with some of the joys and challenges of being a woman in STEM. It's great for anyone, but is a must-listen for any budding researchers. Enjoy! What advice would you have for someone else who is sort of either an early career researcher or somebody who's just thinking about medical physics? So I think the, I, I would just pick up on the success so that we talk about the projects that have worked, don't we? There's a lot <laughs> of projects that haven't worked. <laughs> um, so, you know, we we all have successes and failures. Um, you know, there's a really good series running at UCL at the mo- at moment called Adapt to Thrive, where you know, speakers are asked to speak almost entirely about their failures and how they've, you know, overcome the failures, either, you know, failed, rejected papers, failed grant applications. So I think we should recognise there's a lot of failure in a successful career. Mm. Uh, That's the first thing to say. So I think um, what's kept me positive, I think, and excited about what I do is to work on things that I'm really interested in um, and to to think about um, where I think this technology can make a difference. Um, sometimes that's involved, I think, being brave, and um, that's been difficult to do sometimes. The Gambia project is an example of that. Um, you know, the start of that project, there were people saying it would just never work. And I just knew that it would definitely not work if we didn't try. That was mm. an absolute certainty. Um, So sometimes just being brave enough to fail, you know, to think we're going to try this and it might not work, but we have to try. So that's that's tough sometimes, depending on the stage of career you're in. You can't afford, you know, to try things that don't work for lots of reasons. Um, But sometimes you just need to go out on a limb and do that. Um, Good mentors are really important. You can't do this on your own. I've had a huge amount of people support me and um advocate for me as well Dave Delphi being one of them um I'm obviously a a female physicist and um for most of my career have been you know the only female in the room in in most circumstances it's changing a little bit now thank goodness um so I have you know relied on you know male colleagues to provide the support there hasn't been a female network in place which is an unfortunate Uh, But again, I think is changing now. So recognise that you need allies, you need mentors and you need supporters around you. Think about the relationships that you're building, particularly with your collaborators, your professional relationships and and how to sustain those because they're they're really important. And I'm really proud of the long term collaborations that I've had, you know, most of them over 20 years for both the clinical and the psychology projects that I'm involved in. Um, and you need to look after and nurture those relationships really well as well. So, so it's a combination of, of things, I think. Um, but accepting failure is part of it. <laughs> you mentioned being one of the only female physicists or the only, only female physicist in the room in parts of your career. How has being a female physicist changed and how do you see the, the near future for female physicists? That's a really good question. And I think about that question much more now. um, And I should have thought it about it more earlier in my career. I think if I'm being really honest, early on in my career, 
I just sort of put my head down and got on with it. And maybe I was too accepting of the fact that there were no other women. I just thought, well, I just have to get this job done. And then I think that you reach a certain stage in your career and you then get really angry that there are no other women. And you're like, where are the women? Come on now, what can we do? Um, And what's, I think, really encouraged me in the last few years particularly is the the focus on proper change like not just lip service change but proper change and just the realization that yes that has to be partly driven by women themselves but it's only going to actually work if it's supported by men as well so we can't always let women have the double burden of being the only woman in the room and then managing being the only woman in the room, you know, and then creating all the opportunities for other women and running all of the other, like Athena Swan and all the rest of it. Um, We can't just rely on women for the change. Uh, We have to rely on the whole community coming together to make that change happen. And that for me is is what's changed, I think, in the last few years. Um, So it's really encouraging on our departmental Athena Swan committee that we have a lot of men on that committee. Uh, we still have a lot of conversations that we need to have around what sexism feels like and how it is very unnoticed. We need to be more open about the consequences of that, uh, whilst really being supportive and encouraging of our early career researchers and providing practical help wherever we can. I think mentorship is really key. Um, I'm really happy. I'd hope that my door is very open for particularly female early career researchers to come and chat with me about how they're managing their careers. I think that one to one is really important. It's a big ship to turn. There's still a lot to do, uh, but I'm encouraged now and I really hope that women don't feel as potentially isolated as I probably did in my early career, but I probably didn't notice it. (laughs) As a perspective, that sounds kind of encouraging. evidence of things going in the right direction yeah I mean I think I'm an optimist so I'd like to think that things are changing but we still hear really like some horror stories about what's going on you know and it's very different in different departments I think one of the things that we need to work really hard on is establishing a departmental culture Mm. where change of this type is supported and encouraged and not belittled Um, and I think in our department we've worked really hard on that and there's been some good leadership on that Um, but that's very important and I think the examples of where things are going wrong is where the departmental culture has not been fixed appropriately so that's and that's a big challenge for, for lots of different departments and some institutes as well. How would you describe a really ideal culture? First of all one that where everyone takes responsibility as I said it's not just up to the women to solve the problem that there aren't enough women also being realistic about so properly asking the question of what will make a difference not assuming that you're going to put things in place that will make a difference so ask the groups that you're helping um, for their impact input directly to initiatives um, that will help keep reminding people that this is a problem you know, um, keep reminding people of the statistics. One in nine engineers is female. I don't know, 5% of engineering professors are female. I mean, you know, the stati- so keep reminding people of the the reality rather than, you know, just people saying, we must have fixed that by now. No, we haven't. <laughs> so, um, and then just on a practical level, thinking about, um, you know, the individual support that we can give women uh, 
specific programs that can help um, women. I think we have to be careful about not over mixing women with carers, right? Because lots of people have caring responsibilities. So we sometimes get slightly diverted into the mothers in science conversation, um, as well as the women in science conversation. And therefore, we have to think more broadly about the carers in science conversation. You know, people have mm -hmm. care responsibilities. So that's a tricky thing to negotiate sometimes. Um, but I think we need to be really clear about what initiatives we need for different groups of people. Do you think it's specifically challenging in science? Because obviously achieving gender equality and other forms of equality is a big issue everywhere. Um, is, it, is it particularly challenging in science? It is because of the embedded structures. I mean, just I was thinking, you know, I've thought for, for quite some while, you know, the fellowship scheme is all around being a fellow. We just yeah. accept that language. <laughs> we just always accept that language. I went to a graduation ceremony a couple of years ago and it's really awkward, the cape and everything, the gown that you have to wear. And someone said to me, oh, it's so much easier if you just tuck that under your tie. <clears throat> I don't wear a shirt and tie. The structures of which the university has been built are, you know, male focused. Now, you know, we've just grown up with them when we've accepted those. So, and I think in science, it's that feeling of, you know, how many people can name a famous female scientist? There are more embedded structures to dismantle in science, is my view. And, you know, they're, many of them are historical, but the, they're quite pervasive. You know, they still cast quite a long shadow, I think. So we, we need to challenge them when we see them, definitely. I feel like I want to redirect you towards another positive somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what, what advice actually, instead of thinking about what advice you'd give to the young women, what advice would you give to the, the men in our department and men working in science and engineering? And So I think uh, it, it, it's, I'd encourage men to be advocates and to call out bad behaviour if they see it or bad practice when they see it and not always rely on the women to do that. So, you know, I've had some unfortunate situations where things have happened around me and I felt a huge burden of responsibility to call out behaviour. But it's very disruptive to do that. And it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult sometimes. But I, I know that if I've got a certain number of men in the room that are with me on that, it would make that a lot easier. Mm. So I think it's being aware of a situation and then being able to advocate for women um, as and when it's appropriate. Um, I think it's, it's about asking questions also, you know, what can help, you know, with different people's career journeys. And I think in terms of, encouraging women into science and to stay in science really the strongest argument is that we need diversity not just gender diversity broader diversity in all of our teams the challenges that we're facing in science now are huge and diverse and we need diverse teams to tackle them and we, we can't always be thinking about things through the lens of you know, one particular perspective, you know, and that's also partly informed by the work that I'm doing in global health. We need to think beyond our own shores, beyond our own experience about how our science can have impact globally. And I think, you know, if you speak to most scientists and engineers, you know, they're, they're doing the job they do because they do want to change the world. They, they might feel slightly embarrassed about admitting that, but that is why we're here. Um, so change the world, right? The world is a big 
bubbling, diverse, varied, messy place. So, you know, embrace the mess, embrace the challenge and think about how your science can have much broader impact. So think about who you need to bring into your teams. Think about mm. the balance of skills that you need um, and the create creativity and the ideas and the innovation uh, and how many different people can contribute to that rather than the same old model of a scientist that we've too often worked on. Yeah. And I think that's the message that we can get through to schools really effectively. You know, show the challenges and show all the different types of characteristics and um, skills that we need to face those challenges and get people to look inside themselves and say, you know, I've never thought of myself as being particularly analytical, but I really like to think of myself as a problem solver um, yeah. rather than I'm good at maths or physics, you know. So I think that's a really good way of encouraging more diversity in science particularly. That's a really nice message. So when you were talking about the Bright Project and working in the Gambia, you said that it was a really important journey for you professionally and personally. What were the personal journey that you what was the personal journey you took on that? So I think for me personally that project opened up my eyes to I guess a different way of viewing the world, which is a really big statement. And I guess any type of travel provides you with that. But actually uh, working with the community in the Gambia was really eye-opening for me and thinking particularly about the women in that community and what powerhouses they are. The women in those communities do most of the unpaid work, so they spend most of their time farming, looking after the, the, the children. They're the engines that drive those communities. There's no doubt about that. And I met some extraordinary women on, on the various trips that I've had to the Gambia and feel really honoured to have been able to, to meet them and learn from them and to see the challenges that they've overcome. And, you know, it's, again, a cliche to sort of feel like, you know, those are almost insurmountable challenges when you look at them. But actually, you don't see people, you see people embracing life and celebrating life and still really you know doing incredible things with the resources that they have so I think that was a real probably a real timely lesson for me actually and I'm I'm still take a huge amount of inspiration from the women that have contributed to that project and I think the other thing for me personally was that it was the first time in my career that I'd worked in a female dominated group um, team so that first visit to the Gambia that was myself um, Sarah Lloyd-Fox, who's a psychologist, and uh, Maria Papadimitri, who's a physicist. So we were an all-female team. And it felt really good to work in an all-female team um, and to work on a project where we were working very often with, you know, with mothers and women in the community. It felt really empowering. It, Melinda Gates, I'm inspired by. I've heard her speak a number of times at various Gates conferences. And you know, her mantra is putting women and children at the centre of development. If you support those groups, the whole community thrives. So I think that's something that I've really learned from, definitely. And I'm really proud of our Bright team that in the last year, um, we've got many of the, the Bright team, the female members of the Bright team successfully have um, secured fellowships, um, promotions to other roles, um, really good career development. And I'm proud that we've been the stepping stone for those women to sort of, you know, really move forward. And all of them are brilliant and they're all going to do great things with their careers. And I'm really proud that Bright has been the sort of foundation very often for them to do that. 
Does that sound a bit braggy? <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's really nice. Yeah, I, genu- I am genuinely hugely proud of the team. So, you know, they, they're pretty extraordinary. And uh, they there were a lot of challenges to overcome on that project. And everyone's just dug in and done it, you know. I think it's an interesting question to ask people, what are you proudest of? Mm, yeah. It's okay to be proud of stuff. You've worked on something for 30 years. I think I've, I've been asked that in interviews for various things that I've gone for, you know, um, like, like awards or something. And it's it's very uncomfortable when you're first asked it. There's no doubt about that. You feel very uncomfortable. But then you you have to. And I think it's good for your teams to, to know that you're really proud of what's been achieved. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, that makes total sense. It really does. Because uh, I think that is inspiring for a team. Yeah. To know. Because we all sit off on these journeys on various projects and we don't really know. We've got ambitions for what they might deliver. Um, but how often do we really sit back and say, wow, that that really worked? You know, yeah. I'm really proud of that. And I and I started doing something as well a few years ago, which, um, you know, that period at the end of the year where you're sort of slightly closing down for Christmas and the new year. And it's really tempting I found it very often I would be sitting there and getting really miserable about all the stuff I hadn't done, what was still on my to-do list, the things that I hoped that I would have finished before the 24th of December or something. And I made a conscious decision one year to say, I'm not going to look at all the things that I haven't done yet. I'm going to look back on this year. I'm going to take a moment to think about all of the things that we have done and that we've achieved. And that put me in such a better frame of mind to go on my break. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that that's important um, for us to do. Um, if if only just to give us a bit of peace of mind when we take time off work, to feel okay about the things we've achieved rather than feel worried about the things we haven't finished. You told me something similar once, uh, I think a kind of antidote, that's probably too strong a word, but it, it represents the right kind of thing, antidote to the imposter syndrome, that you keep a list in your head of, the, of, of evidence that <laughs> things that have gone well, you know, yeah. try to concentrate on those some of the time. Yeah, and we we all need to refer to that list at different times just to remind ourselves that we were invited to do something scary for a reason. Um, Other people put their faith in us and there was documented evidence why they should do that. They believed that evidence. We should believe that evidence about ourselves. That's quite a helpful one, isn't it? Because you often you find it easier to find somebody else a very reliable judge yeah. uh, and if they've judged that you're good in some situation you can you can you can judge their decision as likely to be good yeah other than your own yeah yeah but I think you need your your own personal touchstones of the things that you can either you know I say this often when I give sort of talks about women in science you know it's okay to admit that we need those personal touchstones like Maybe someone sent you an email to thank you for something that you'd done and the impact that you'd had. It's okay to keep that email and read it sometimes to remind yourself when you're feeling scared. I mean, it comes back to the comment I made earlier about being brave. Being brave involves being scared. (laughs) So you have to deal with being scared. So you have to find some way of giving you the scaffold that enables you to deal with the scared feeling and to then move on to being brave. Those are things that are, are important. And I think sometimes as academics, we're a bit embarrassed to admit that we need that. And, and the other thing I, I, I've said before is I learned something from Dave Delphi, who's, I just think, an absolute hero, you know, from lots of perspectives, is a great scientist, a great human being. 
but you know he's a sort of scary person when you're his PhD student right but I remember sitting next to him in an auditorium before he got up to give his keynote talk and I remember being hugely relieved to see how nervous he was before he got out of his chair because I just always saw him on stage as being completely composed and in, in control of everything and I never saw him I never saw his nerves when he was on stage and I remember thinking, well, it's okay if he's nervous, it's really okay for me to be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> that so does that, help, doesn't it? Yeah. Just seeing a little bit of people's vulnerability and, you know, how they how they overcome that um, is important to mm. realise that it's okay to be focusing on those things in yourself. I think it's really nice to when people and science, when scientists and engineers talk about themselves as people and not just about a list of their scientific achievements because yeah. science is done by people and these journeys are not just sort of uh, your, your scientific results they're also how you've grown as a person and what you've learned and exactly and the choices that you've made and there are lots of things that inform those choices you know in, in your sort of personal situation and I think that's we've had this conversation before Gemma about role models I mean that's often something that's quoted as being very positive for women in science particularly is to have role models I've, I think that's a double-edged sword I think sometimes yeah. role models are just hugely scaring and intimidating if you dehumanize them mm -hmm. so if we constantly promote people as role models on the basis of their professional successes without balancing that against the things that they've had to work on to be successful or the things that they failed at then the role model can really be quite a um, can have quite a negative effect and be counterproductive um, because it's really scary if you just look at someone and think oh my god they've just achieved all of these things they're clearly I'm not that person I'm not that yeah. category of person you know um, I will opt out because I can't do that that's uh, that's something I've heard far too often I think mm. things like that CV of failures help with help with some of that some of the time doesn't it See, seeing these yeah. extremely successful characters seeing their that they have that they've had challenges too it really does help yeah yeah and you know I think in science particularly we are driven by these very clear metrics of research income and papers and mm. um but sometimes what you know our successes can be that you know we've helped mentor somebody so that they've achieved something themselves that's a success for me if I'm so excited when I like you know when I hear about Gemma's successes I'm just genuinely really excited um, and that for me feels like I'm sorry Gemma but I'm taking part of your success as well no, don't. Like the fact that I know <laughs> I'm giving you 30 to 40 percent of my success but, no, no, but the, the fact that we've had conversations about you know various things in, in your career and you know I I'm really always thrilled to see that that they can be productive and and, and useful and valuable so yeah so so you valuable. Know, so those are those are part of academic success we have to count those as part of our academic success rather than focusing always on these very sort of ref refy metrics you know which are important they're really important but the the wholeness of our success is really important too I find it really nice to be able to humanize everybody a bit more and to and and gen like personally very interesting to know how people have weighted their different decisions and what's influenced yeah them. it's kind of the human element that makes a story isn't it a yeah. lot of the time as yeah. well that yeah. we sort of naturally drawn to that like yeah. the history of nearly everything where you hear yeah. about the lives of scientists and who did what rather than what was done and it sort yeah. of worked yeah so I, yeah. I teach the intercalated students quantum mechanics without any maths 
and I teach it pretty much from the perspective of the people and yeah. I go through five scientists and say you know these are people all very different individuals very different types of humans like about as different as you could get that's just really interesting <laughs> um but collectively their contribution created the field of quantum mechanics I find that a really interesting way of dealing with the sort of history of science um yeah. because I think then that that message about going into schools and saying don't think about the topics that you think think about the things that you like doing and how that thing you like doing can contribute to this big project where we need to solve a problem you know but I think also as as mentors and more senior academics it's it's a difficult line because sometimes I feel I just need to know a little bit more about what's driving early career researchers other than just their research and or career ambitions so sometimes just to get a little bit of contact from people to say you know I'm actually I might only be in the UK for another few years or you know I'm looking to travel I'd like to do this that, and the other and, and then it helps your guidance to be more impactful hopefully as well. Thanks to Professor Elwell for sharing her research and career with us this was the University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself Jamie Guggenheim this was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin McLeod If you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of every month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering. If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses, including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies. You might also consider following the department on Twitter at UCL MedPhys, that's UCL M-E-D-P-H-Y-S. Bye for now. Bye.